I'm afraid word got out last week that we had a lot more adults than kids, and they are forming a rival gang. Um, so we should be in prayer for the people who are serving our kids today. Uh, they have many to work with, and so that's a, that's a good thing to have. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up uh, to Matthew chapter 17. Uh, let, let me tell you kind of where we are at here on Sunday mornings for the next couple weeks. Uh, today we're going to come to a resting place in our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. We've been working patiently through it for a while now, but we're going to come back to we're going to come to a resting spot. Uh, we'll dive back into it. The plan is to come back uh, beginning with chapter 18 sometime in mid-May. Uh, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to spend them preparing our hearts for our Easter celebration. Uh, after this week, we'll have three weeks before then. Just a reminder, uh, this is a great time to obligate your friends to join you uh, to Easter. And, uh, and then, after, as soon as we're done with Easter, I, I'm really excited that we're at a, a spot where we can do this. Uh, because for the last couple of years, I've been itching to kind of walk through, and I know you're like, this sounds really weird. Uh, it might sound weird. But to walk through the story of Jonah uh, with you as a church. And so uh, if you like fishing, um, there's a fish in the story. Uh, maybe that will help you. I don't know. I don't know why I said that. So, uh, but, but we'll spend about four weeks going through the story of Jonah. And then, we'll, again, we'll dive back into uh, Matthew chapter 18. But, but today we're going to finish uh, by chewing on, on three different scenes. We won't give them equal time. Uh, we'll spend more time in the first scene, and then we'll kind of walk through the next two. Uh, and, and what is going to be happening is Jesus will use these scenes, again, to help grow the faith of the disciples, and in return, will help grow our faith so we can better see Him, we can understand Him more clearly. Uh, and, and really, throughout this whole series, we've been talking about this shift in the attention of the gospel, where it starts in chapter 14, where Jesus begins this concentrated effort of, of talking to his guys, uh, talking to his 12 disciples, explaining to them what life with him looks like. And, and he does this because he's preparing them for his coming arrest, his execution, uh, his resurrection, and, uh, and the path he is using to help them, uh, the path he's using is actually working. <laughs> they are beginning to see him more clearly. Now, maybe not altogether more clearly, but they, they see these moments and they say, okay, how you are being displayed, that's, that's how you're intending yourself to be displayed. And, and this revelation, uh, which has kind of been in front of us, is that when we approach Jesus, we first have to see him as the Christ. Uh, that's his most important role. Uh, he is the Messiah. He is the one sent by God the Father to rescue man from the damage of sin that leads to death. But not just rescue us from that, he also brings us back to God. Okay? And that, that's beautiful. That, that's great news for you and me. That Christ brings us uh, back to God. And this, I think, again, is the most important revelation of Jesus, because this leads to Him being most glorified uh, in our lives, and and we can think of Jesus as a good teacher, and He is, and we can think of Jesus as a mighty healer, and He is, and we can think of Him as this capable leader, and, and He is. But all of those things are merely these signposts 
for Him on display for who He truly is as our Lord and as our Savior. And so these chapters have been, hopefully they've, they've been eye-opening to you. They have been for me. Um, but they've been this journey with the disciples as they ask themselves and then they ask each other a simple question. Who, who is this guy? Who, who is Jesus? And, and this culminated a few weeks ago when Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And, and then he looks at him and he goes, well, follow-up question, who do you say that I am? And Peter brings that revelation to us. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And, and Jesus says, that's, that's right. That, that's important. That's right. And in, in these final verses of chapter 17, we get to see ourselves dis- on display in the lives of the disciples, uh, especially in, in the first scene, where, where I believe we can find um, some help if, when it comes to some of our most confusing moments with God. Uh, if you say, okay, I don't understand why that didn't work in my life, uh, I think we're going to find some hope and some help in, in these words. And so let's pray and then we'll, we'll get going. Father, we come to you and we are just so thankful that our prayers are not dead words, uh, that they reach uh, you, our living God. And I pray that as we open up your word this morning, that we would rely on your Holy Spirit that He has been welcomed here and that He would do some speaking into our hearts. Father, I pray that, uh, that as we pursue You and pursue Your heart in the Word this morning, that we would get to see just another glimpse of Your Son. And as we see Him more clearly, we would love Him more and more. Father, we, we thank You. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. All right, let's start in verse 14. All right, we're going to go 14 to 27. All right, we're going to move through it somewhat fast, but maybe somewhat slow. We'll just see. Um, So we'll start with this. And when they came to the crowd. Okay, now, some of you are like, well, I wasn't here last week, so I don't know what happened. I'm glad you're you're here now. Uh, Let me tell you what happened last week. Okay, when they came to the crowd, this is uh, following in the footsteps of verses 1 through 13, and uh, where we... Well, we know now who they are, that, that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up high on a mountain where Jesus was transfigured, okay? And that transfiguration was mainly this, that, that Jesus' face shone like the sun and his robe was whiter than white and all of a sudden Moses and Elijah show up and they're discussing Jesus' passion, his, his road to the cross, Peter again decides, hey, let's build tents, let's live in this moment forever. And God booms with the cloud and he speaks to them. He says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And they fall. Jesus comes. They're they're full of fear. Jesus touches them, says, rise, fear not. And all of a sudden it's just them. And so they start to come down from this mountain. And as they're coming down the mountain... They go to this crowd, and in the crowd will be the rest of the disciples. Okay, and so, so we remember that transfiguration. This is it's a glorious and it's this powerful display, uh, not because something is being added to Jesus, but that for a brief moment in our story, we get to see a picture of Jesus fully unveiled. Okay, that this is who he is. That we said any form of humanity that he kind of has is this veil helping us understand. Um, what he is doing in our lives. And so, so, and when they came through the crowd, a man came up to him, being Jesus, kneeling before him, 
Okay, so we get to see the proper uh, posture of approaching Jesus, humility. And he says this, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. They could not heal him. Now, Jesus is about to do something spectacular. But, but let's just pause for a moment, and I want us to wear these verses. Okay, this, imagine for a moment that this is your son, or your daughter, or for some, your puppy, right? Um, who you love more than any human in the history of the earth, right, Nancy? Right? No, no, I hear you yelling at your dogs, okay? It's just not nice. Um <laughs> But, but imagine, imagine in this moment the torment of both the boy and the father. Okay? I think when we approach verses like this, we, can, we run the risk of, of casually reading these words and we don't engage our heart in them. That this is a, a desperate situation. Falling into a fire leaves a permanent wound. Uh, it, falling into the water can end your life in a horrific way. Okay? So so this is a, a desperate situation from a parent who I am sure has spent countless nights lying awake trying to figure out how they can best protect their kid. And so so the intensity, the desperation, and the urgency of this father's request should be felt. This isn't just some guy saying, Oh wait, well I have you here. Um, I have this kid, can I have a problem? No, this man goes and he seeks out Jesus and he kneels before him. He gets right up on him, kneels before him, and he says, uh, I brought him to your disciples and that they, they couldn't heal him. And so, verse 17, and Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, which is what you're like, ah, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And in verse 18, we reveal... We're, we're told why this was happening. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed when? Instantly, suddenly, at that time. So, so Jesus' chastisement and his seeming frustration, right? You're like, I don't, I don't think that's Jesus. I thought he was always just wanting us to like him. Um, but but his, his frustration or seeming frustration is directed at these people who have seen him, and yet they don't him fully. This is including the disciples who were incapable of casting out this demon from this boy, which Jesus has given him them authority to do. He's looked at them and he's already sent them off, as we find out in the Gospels. When you look at it chron- chronologically, he's already sent them off. And he says, hey, go heal the sick. Go raise the dead. Go, go exercise the demons. Go send them out. I give you the authority to do that. And when you use the authority of my name, those things are capable for you. Those things are capable for you. And yet he comes in and he sees this moment and, and he calls them faithless in that despite seeing, they still don't trust. And he calls them twisted in that they've distorted, they have a distorted perception of Jesus and a distorted perception on these spiritual truths. But, but we learned something important here about Jesus, okay? That even in his frustration, 
Okay? And we can agree, right, at least for the moment that I'm right, okay, that, that Jesus seems frustrated with this moment because he says some really harsh words to them. That we can learn something about Jesus here, and it's beautiful that he endures our unbelief and he meets our deepest needs. That he doesn't say, you know, you don't believe, forget it, just go. Right? And somebody is like, ah, I should take parenting techniques from Jesus and not my grandparents. Right? That, that he alone has the power to heal and save and deliver and meet the deepest needs in our life. And this is, gonna, this is the issue that the disciples have, and we'll, we'll see this in a second, that, that all things, all things happen through Jesus. Okay? That's why Jesus will say, I send you out in the authority of my name, in the power of my name. Okay? So all things happen through Jesus and understanding our, our limitations and understanding his infinite worth helps us move in his direction first before we attempt to take matters into our own hands. And this is what we're going to find out. This is what the disciples were doing. They said, ah, I've seen this done before. All right, here we go. And then it doesn't work. Verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately, right? I love this moment. They're like, as the crowd leaves, and like, okay, let's ask him before anybody else hears this. Right? Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. Okay, we can circle those words. You can underline those words. You can put stars to them. Right? Because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, now listen to this. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, which is about this big, okay? About how big? About that big, okay? If you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And so many people take that verse and they say, well, let's make it whatever I want. Let's try to sell that. Nothing is impossible for you. And so, so there, there's, a, there's a lot, though, in this scene we don't know about what's going on in the hearts, the minds, and the motives of the disciples as they, they fail to cast out this demon. But something that they previously had succeeded in uh, under Christ's authority. But, but we do know this from the Gospel of Mark in chapter 9. The same story is being told. Uh, and Jesus reveals to them something new. Okay, uh, He says that, that their barrier was that this kind of healing comes only through prayer. Okay, now, now, these are not two different explanations. In fact, uh, we can understand how they go together when we think about what Jesus is saying here in, in Matthew. Uh, because when Jesus tells the disciples that they have so little faith, so little faith, it, it's not a matter of quantity. Uh, because when he comes in, he says, if you just have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Okay, now... Far be it from me to say that that can't be a literal mountain, okay? But one of the things we, we learn as we read the Bible is that the mountain is a proverbial expression for overcoming difficulties, okay? If you're looking for some places to see in there, go to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 4, uh, chapter 49, verse 11, chapter 54, verse 10. And if you didn't get those, too bad. I'm never saying them again. Um, and so, so the disciples, though, must have had at least a little bit of faith. Right? Or else they wouldn't have attempted it. 
if they say, well, that's impossible, there's, there's no hope. So they have at least a little faith. And that's what Jesus recognizes. Your faith is little. And, and so instead of referring to an inadequate amount of faith, I think Jesus is referring to a faith that's simply deficient. It, it, it's a faith, um, it, it's not the kind of faith that, that's effective. And this is, this is clear from his previous words. He says, you're a faithless and a twisted generation. That, that biblical faith typically has three components to it. Uh, that number one, we have what we believe but we can't see. Okay? If you can see it, uh, that's not faith, that's seeing it. Okay? So, so faith begins with this belief of something that, that I believe but I can't see, and that can give us hope, right? Number two, we have, uh, we have to deal with who makes that belief true. So biblical faith, who makes that belief true is, is God, that He is always trustworthy, He is always truthful. And then number three, we trust that Jesus is at the heart of that faith. That all things are made through Him and by Him. Okay? So our faith always really just rests in Him. Okay? So those three things are at play. Something I can't see, but I believe is true. God who makes that true, and Jesus who is at the heart of it. And so, so He's always part of this equation. This is why, okay? This is why faith is personal, not mechanical. Aren't you with? Because that, that's, a, that's a big part. Because so often we want to treat faith as a mechanism, not a relationship. And so when we want to treat it as mechanical, we do certain steps and we take certain paths. And then when we get frustrated or when it doesn't play out the way we want to, I think this is what Jesus is pointing out to the disciples. They say, why couldn't we do that? He says, well, this kind of healing, only prayer can answer it. And they say, well, Jesus, we did all the things. We shook all the hands, we, we washed, we, we talked, we exercised, we even said the right words, but yet nothing happened. And I believe what Jesus is coming in here and saying, you didn't do this with me, you did this for me. All right, you with? You, did, you didn't do this with me, you did this for me. And that kind of faith won't work because ultimately, when you do it for me, that faith doesn't exude that that. Glory doesn't go to me, it really goes to you. So he goes, when you do this with me, when you bring your prayer into that equation, and I'm involved in it, powerful things happen. And what happened to the boy when Jesus got involved? He's healed immediately, instantly. And so, so let, let me tell you, I think there's, there's two things that, that are very clear from this, part, this scene, okay? And I told you, we're not going to spend equal time. So you're like, oh my God, three me forever. We're not going to spend equal time. So... So there are two clear lessons from this story. That Number one, to be effective in serving God, we need to have a continuing relationship with God. To be effective serving God, we need a continuing relationship with God. And I know that sounds like a novel idea, right? That I would actually be continuing my growth. We call that sanctification, that growing up uh, in Christ. That it, it's always easy for a genuine experience of God's grace to, and a genuine relationship with Him to deteriorate into something merely mechanical. Merely mechanical. Okay, and that's... That, uh, let me tell you where we see this the most, and it's, it's tragic. That when marriages fall apart, it falls apart because at this level. 
that the relationship doesn't continue, it starts to deteriorate. To where all of a sudden, you're just playing roles and you're doing the mechanisms, right? But you're not, your affections for one another isn't growing any stronger. And I think it's crazy, I think it's beautiful that, that the imagery of our relationship with Christ and the church is the bride and the groom. That His people would continue pursuing Him even after that moment of marriage, right? Even after the ceremony when love is easy, right? When, when the honeymoon is going on and you're in that honeymoon phase that you would continue even after that moment pursuing the heart of your spouse. And this is what Christ says. His promise to us is that He will con- be relentless in His pursuit with us. And our response to that is pursuing His heart with equal passion. With equal passion. And I think uh, because just because we, we've had God's blessing in the past, we, we can think that that will go unchanged as long as we just merely do the right things, right? We, we go to church, we read our Bibles, we even teach a class, or we even preach sermons. Uh, but sadly, these, we, we can do those things and other worthwhile things without any real reliance on God. You didn't need God to bring you to church today. You could do that on your own. You, you don't need God to open up your Bible. He's given you too good of hands to open them up with. And so, so sadly, that, that's part of our issue, that nothing can substitute a personal, continuing, trusting relationship with God. Number two, number two. There are no shortcuts to spiritual authority. There are no shortcuts to spiritual authority. That, that the disciples must have been seeking some sort of shortcut. And it seems like they were. They were like, oh, we've done this before. Take, Holy Spirit, take the day off. We got it. Jesus, don't concern yourself with this. Watch what we're going to do. And, and so uh, they needed to go back to Jesus to learn why they were failing. And, and, and I love the fact that he explains it to them. That, that when they did this, they, they grew. Moreover, the time came somewhat later when they are just going across the world into the nations and they're taking those things that Jesus is teaching them right now to people who are lost, dying, broken, and sick. And so just because, uh, and I think this is good news for us, that just because you and I fail from time to time, that Jesus is willing to continue to reuse us <laughs> and to build us stronger. That I, I still believe this. I firmly believe this. That Jesus sees more in you than you see in yourself. And I think when you walk with the disciples, you get to see that on display. That Jesus doesn't say, you know, forget it. Your faith is so weak. I'm done with you guys. Give me the next 12. He doesn't say that. He says, no, I'm going to continue working on you. I'm going to continue showing you my glory. I'm going to continue uh, encouraging you and challenging you to do things that you can't do on your own. Let's keep going. Verse 22, scene 2. As they were gathering in Galilee, okay, so now we've moved. We've moved. Uh, We're in Galilee now. Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And they, you can circle or mark this word, will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And it says they were greatly distressed. They were greatly distressed. Like this is, could you imagine somebody you deeply love says, hey, somebody's about to kill me. And it's not a joke. <laughs> not a joke. It says, 
they're, they're going to kill me. We are on limited time, you and I. I know. And here Jesus adds to what he predicted earlier, right? We, we were here in, in chapter 16 where Jesus tells them about what's, what's about to be at play. And that's when Peter stepped up and he said, no, no, not you. Not you. And Jesus says, no, I have to go. He, he helps us understand the imperative of him going to this cross. And, but here's something has changed, okay? So in 16, he says he, ha- he must go to Jerusalem, and he must suffer at the hands of the elders, uh, and he must be uh, killed, and on the third day he will be raised to life. Now, now that, that verse, chapter 16, it, it stresses the necessity of his passion. It must happen, okay? But here he changes something, right? Those, those two words I told you to circle? Instead of saying must, he says will. This, this will, so here he emphasizes the certainty of his death. And, and I, think, I think so many of these moments will be helpful uh, in, in growing the disciples' faith. Uh, because, because when Jesus says this, and I think it becomes really helpful to them in those three days, when Jesus is on the cross, and he's laid in the tomb, and for three days he's in the grave, and they can't see him, and they can't hear him. And all they have in that moment is this ability to rely on his word. He has said, I must, and he says, I will. I will be raised from the dead. I will return. And that's where your faith grows in that moment of saying, I don't know if I can, I can't see this. And so I am hoping this is true. I believe that this is true. And what does Jesus do for them? He comes back in three days. He tells the truth. He always tells the truth. And so when he gives us promises in the Bible that you read about and you say, well, that sounds really nice. Well, wish that was applicable to me. You're not anything different than every other mankind. Every other man in mankind. You're not. So that promise that he gives us in the Bible, he gives to you. Now, so I think, I think this, this helps us grow a faith of substance. But yes, I can't see it. But he has never lied. He has never misled me. He has never distorted the truth in just, just a little bit. He doesn't round the edges. Scene three, let's go. Verse 24. And when they came to Capernaum, all right, so we are moving, right? They've gone from uh, where they were at in Caesarea Philippi. They've gone to Galilee. Now they're in Capernaum. And the collectors of the two drachma tax, and I know you're like, are we talking two drachma tax today? And I'm like, we sure are. Um, They went up to Peter and they said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, Peter said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, okay? So, so this is, it's helpful for me to see this. I think Peter's in the front yard. Uh, let's just say he's pulling weeds. Who knows, right? I don't know what kind of weed situation you got there, but there's a ton here. So, so Peter's outside. Jesus is inside when the two men who are collecting the tax come up to them. Uh, I'm sorry, when the collectors come to them and they ask Peter, hey, does your uh, teacher not pay the tax? And so he says yes, and then uh, Simon comes in, right? And then Jesus speaks to him first. 
And I think this is just an awkward moment. Okay? So, what do you think, Simon? From, from whom do the kings of the earth take their toll or their tax? From their sons or from others? Okay? And when he said, from others, when Peter says, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Circle those words. That's huge for us. The sons are free. Okay? Now, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea okay, and cast a hook, take out the first fish that comes up, and when you open his mouth, it, well, you're going to find a shekel. And take that, give it to them for me and for yourself. Okay? This is, this is really interesting. Okay? So let me, let me talk to you about the two drachma tax. Okay? Uh, it's, it's a, we find its origin in the book of Exodus, chapter 30, okay? It's designed to help um, with the maintenance and the upkeep of the temple in Jerusalem, okay? So, so when they, at the time, it was built for the tabernacle, but once the temple was made in the Old Testament, uh, this tax was moved over to take care of the temple in Jerusalem. And again, it's, it's, loose, it's based loosely off of Exodus 30, and it required every... Jewish male, when he became 19, to pay this tax. Now, there's no demand uh, for it to be paid annually, but that became the custom. Okay, and so, and so half a shekel equaled two drachma, uh, or 500 shrut bucks, if you were wondering. Um, there's a conversion chart; it gets really confusing. Uh, and so, and if you don't know what a shrut buck is, then Maybe you should live in Springtown. All right? I'm just saying. We don't... Anyways. Uh, and if you don't know what that means, then I don't know what to help you. Okay? So, so here's what would happen, though. Instead of splitting that, you would take one shackle and two guys would go in uh, and say, this is our tax for the year. And so Jesus says, hey, Peter, um, we're going to get a shackle. You and I get to be drachma buddies uh, this year. And, and, and Jesus' point uh, is, is simply this. When he asked Peter, he goes, who do... A king. Let's just take a king. When the king is bringing in taxes, who does he charge? Does he collect taxes from his sons, or does he have other people pay that? And Jesus said, uh, Peter says, well, he wouldn't ask it from his sons, right? Because they're part of the royal family. And he says, exactly. So the sons are free. And so what he does here is he said, he's been saying all along, right, that I am the son of God. I am the son that God has sent. And so he looks and he says this. He goes, he goes, I am not under any obligation to pay the temple tax. In fact, people who are part of my family, they are under no obligation to pay the temple tax. And this is important because we're learning that we are free from the obligation and the demand of religion. Since we're, we're free from those things. We have been set free. We don't find our worth in paying the temple tax. Okay? Or, to, or to make this more um, recent for us, we don't find our worth in paying our tithe and our time and our conveniences. We don't give those things and find our worth in them. In fact, we find our worth, and this is what Jesus is helping us understand, we find our worth by being found in Christ, in Christ alone. That's where our identity Rest, not in our ability to serve in classrooms, and not in our ability to give away certain things in our lives. We find our worth in Christ. And until you realize that, 
you will always have an identity crisis. Always. We find our worth in Christ. We are sons of God, therefore we are free. So when we do give, when we do give, when we don't use our freedoms as this excuse to be stingy, in fact, we, when we do give our tithe and our time and our conveniences, we do so from a place of appreciation and a longing to bring glory to the one who has given us worth, uh, that being Jesus and Him glorified, Him lifted. And that, that's why what Jesus does next is, is so helpful, okay? And I love this, and I need, I need, I need you guys to hear this. <laughs> because though He is under no obligation to pay the tax, he also doesn't wish to offend. So we see this powerful miracle that's easy to miss. Okay, Let, let's, let's paint this picture from what Jesus just told Peter to do. Right? And Peter's willingness to go do this is incredible. He says, okay, Pete, take your fishing pole. Go down to the lake. Throw it in there. Okay? And, and you're going to get a bite. You're going to get a fish. First fish, in case you're wondering how many fish do I need to check, your first fish you're going to pull in. And when you open its mouth, it's going to have money in it. Okay? Yes, see, crazy if it wasn't so true. Since the first fish, you get, how many of you have ever fished and found money in the mouth of a fish? Oh, nobody? Good. I don't fish, so I wouldn't know if that is. Like maybe if that was a thing, I would fish more. Because I'm like, all right, let's do, let's do this. But Jesus sent someone this, just from our perspective, a ridiculous quest, an impossible quest. I mean, I, I believe very firmly that Jesus could have just put a coin in that fish's mouth and fish are so dumb they don't know what to do with it. I believe that, that could just materialize. I think that's true. Um, but, but I also think that there could be a, a case that years and years and years and years or days and days and days ago, this fish swallows this shekel and in this precise moment he will take the bait and he will be hooked for this moment of glory for this this moment of glory and i think but but i think uh i think there's there's a lesson here about christians understanding the not not the fish thing uh the whole temple text thing jesus says to not offend them Let's appease them. To not offend them, let's go ahead and pay the tax. Even though I'm not under any obligation to do so. And I think there's a lesson to be learned here about Christians understanding the difference in taking a stand for the gospel and realizing that there are some cases where your um, conduct is just offensive. I think, I think there, Jesus teaches us that there are moments where, where the battle on the hill matters and then when it should be avoided. And sadly, in our culture, we forget. We forget that we are aliens on this land. We forget that we are strangers in this world. That this is not our resting place. Our home is in heaven. And so we forget that the rest of the world that is dark and dying plays by a different set of rules than we do. And we hold them in contempt for it. When really the issue isn't that we should hold them in contempt we should hold them with compassion in our hearts. And yet our challenge is that we choose the dumbest hills to fight battles on. 
we forget it's about um, we forget it's about the heart long before it's about the hands, and we forget that those people that we church broadstroked that we think are the worst of the worst that they're desperately looking for purpose they're desperately looking for peace and joy and those things come only through Christ but you know this about your own story because you once lived apart from Christ you know that void and you know how deep it is and how it doesn't feel like it's ever fully satisfied And so our challenge that we face, and I believe Jesus is helping us understand, that there are hills worth fighting battles for. Okay? And understand this, God doesn't need you to defend Him as much as you think He does. He's strong. He's capable. He's better than you. Okay? You can take that away. It'll make you feel good about yourself, right? We don't have to fight the battle on every hill. And so Jesus says this, as to not offend them. Why not offend them? Because the purpose of his relationship with them is their salvation. So we get to see that. Let's start wrapping this up. I got got four more blanks for you. We're going to go through this kind of quickly. All right, so we come to the end of this chapter. And I think when we come to the end of a chapter, we say, okay, what's helpful here? All right, what can we, how can we respond to Matthew 17? Because that's what our pursuit should be with any chapter of the Bible. How can I respond to these words? Okay, and I believe firmly that we respond best to these words when we focus our attention and our affection on Jesus. Okay, that we would do these four things. That number one, we would uh, let us look to His worth. That we would see His divine glory. We would see His patient power. We would see His willing sacrifice. We would see His certain victory. And we would see His humble authority. And then our proper response would simply be this. We fall before Him in worship and we say, How great You are! You are great. You are mighty. That we would fix our attention, our affection on the Lord Jesus and we would stop spending our lives on trivial and temporal things. This is what he tells us. He says, take your eyes out of this very temporal thing and place it on heavenly realities. He says, go enjoy that. Go find your fulfillment in that. And when you do, all of these things will be exposed for how frivolous they are. Yes, some of those things might be urgent. Some of those things might be painful. Some of those things might be difficult. But he says, if you cast your eyes on me, you will find a reason for dealing with all of this. Number two, that we would listen to his word. That we would listen to his word. And I think, I think back to that moment in the transfiguration last week when God comes down and he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And he says this, listen to him. And why do we listen to Jesus? Good question. Because he shows us the path to a life that makes a difference. He repurposes our hearts for the purpose of his glory. Number three. 
Let us live for His renown. That when you see the glory of God, you want to spread the gospel of God. When you see the glory of God, you want to spread the gospel of God. So let's proclaim the one we praise. Let me ask you this question. We, we sang some words earlier in song together. Was that the first moment this week, or not this week, because some of you are like, well, this is the first of the week. All right, you'll, you'll get, my, get the context. Was that the first time since last week that you praised His name? Was that the first time that you said anything that was encouraging about Him, that was praiseworthy about Him? Because the role of the believer is to take that message to the world, not to the church. The healthy don't need the doctor, the sick do. So let's not see His glory and then be silent. Let's, let's speak to people about the Christ that we cherish. Also, let's embrace suffering as we follow our Savior. That, that just as the cross preceded the crown for Jesus, so suffering in this life precedes our final reward. Okay, So when we go through difficult circumstances, that's not the indication that our life is ending. That's that our life is worthy and being put on display for the glory of God because all suffering find their satisfaction in Christ. Number four. We long for His return. So, so, so we, we, we let us look to His worth, let us listen to His word, let us live for His renown, and then let us long for His return. That appetite for the return of Christ, that eagerness should be on the heart of everybody. And if we say, gosh, there's... Not today. Not today. I, I bargained... Have you ever bargained with Jesus when you hear that He's coming back? You're like, okay, wait, hold on. I'm all for that, but not not today. Right? I, l- let me get married first. Let me have a kid first. Let me experience retirement first. Let me, and there's always going to be a let me. Will there not be? There will always be a let me. And I think that's always an indication of a heart that's divided. Because nothing, nothing pales in comparison. In fact, John, 1 John chapter 2, put, 3 puts it this way. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Oh, it's incredible. What we will be has not appeared, but we know that when He appears, when Christ appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone thus hopes in Him, purifies Himself as He is pure that we eagerly await His return. Because there's nothing that's greater than when Christ comes back and He brings us to our eternal home. And I know that's a hard concept to get your heart around, right? Especially when you're young. You're like, well, I'm going to live forever. I'll never have a problem. Right? But we eagerly await that. Because that's when 
sin and sickness, pain, that's when it finds its end for those found in Christ. There will be none of that. There will be this moment where you see Christ as He truly is. And John tells us, you will be like Him. It's great news for us. Our desire this week is to love God. Bye. Please stand with me. We're not leaving yet. Man. He's like, oh, well, all right. I'm just playing. A lot of people wanted to follow you. They're like, why did he stop? Um, we want to open this space up. Uh, Troy and Jessica will be over here, and Keith and Kim will be over here. If you need prayer this morning, we want to pray with you. If you've never asked Jesus into your heart, today's the best day to do that. Right now is the best time to do that. We believe you will never experience peace and joy more than in Him. I love you guys. Let's pray. Father, thank you so very much for giving us your word this morning to walk through. Thank you so very much for for being willing to, to, to press into matters of faith for us. So, Father, we pray that, that we would have eyes that where you would help us with our unbelief at times. We thank you that we don't find our worth in religion. We thank you that we don't find our worth in just following these simple steps. We thank you that our we find our worth always, always, always in a personal relationship with your Son. So we lift Him high this morning. We praise You for sending Him to us. We thank You that He is the reason that we can speak to You. We love You. It's in Jesus' name we pray.